0: 2 Kings, chapter 3, page 261. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made, nevertheless he clung to the sins of jeroboam son of nebat which had caused israel to commit he did not turn away from them now mesha king of Moab, raised sheep and he had to supply the king of israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of of a hundred thousand rams but after ahab died the king of Moab rebelled against the king of israel so at that time King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack? he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there prophet of the Lord here? that we may require inquire of the lord through him an officer of the lord an officer of the king of israel answered elisha son of shaphat is here he used to pour water on the hands of elijah jehoshaphat said the word of the lord is with him so the king of israel and jehoshaphat and the king of edom went down to him elisha said to the king of israel what do we have to do with each other go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother no the king of israel answered because it was the lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to moab elisha said as surely as the lord almighty lives whom i serve if i did not have respect for the presence of jehoshaphat king of judah i would not look at you or even notice you but now Bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and your cattle and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms, was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites, across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the, all the springs and cut down every good tree. Yeah. Only armed with slings uh, was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land.
1: There are some people whose words are greatly valued Uh, Ben Bernanke is a person like that. Do you know who Ben Bernanke is? He's the chairman of the US uh, Federal Reserve. And when Ben Bernanke opens his mouth, what happens? The stock market either rises or falls. (laughs) Uh, People listen. The financial world listens to what this man has to say. Uh, Last week, the Secretary of the Australian Treasury, uh, Martin Parkinson, made a prophecy about our future as a nation. And uh, he said that Australia is about to enter into an economic golden age, which will last for decades. Imagine the power of those words. I didn't check the uh, financial papers to see what happened to the stock market after that. But uh, comments like that can have the uh, the power to uh, really create investor confidence and to cause some politicians to do some bragging as well. His words are valuable. They are valued. Uh, it's also true with school teachers. Well, this time of year anyway. I understand it's school report writing time, is that right? Okay. And uh, school teachers amongst us are uh, Uh, working early in the morning or late in the night uh, consuming lots of coffee, pouring over the uh, students' reports, and uh, they know that they have to think very carefully about every word that they write. Why? Well, it's not because the students pay much attention to the reports, it's because of the parents who read every word over and over again wondering what does that word mean? What did the teacher intend by that? What does he really think about my my child? Their words are valued. What about God's word? How much do we value what God has to say? How carefully do we listen to God? Do we really believe that God's word is more precious than gold? and more and sweeter than honey from the comb, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 19. That's an issue which we've been dealing with in recent weeks. And It's an issue which the Bible keeps on confronting us with over and over again. Uh, as we read through Two Kings, which we've started a new series on, we're going to see this issue. It keeps on coming up. How do people value... God's Word. Now, I don't think this microphone's working at all, is it? I mean, it's um, there's terrible ringing coming through. Can we just go with this one, uh, Ben? Thanks very much. We'll stick with this for the time being. Um, Two Kings is a book which tells us how the rulers of God's people valued or not valued God's Word. And we see it in today's passage, which is 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, which I wonder if you might like to have open in front of you, 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3 is all about a king by the name of King Joram. Now my guess is you probably haven't heard much about King Joram. He doesn't really feature a great deal in the Bible, but he features here in 2 Kings chapter 3. Well, what do we know about him and what was he like? And what we do know is that he didn't expect to become king. Uh, his brother had been king, but we heard about what happened to his brother last week, didn't we? What, what happened to him? He fell out of a window and he died. And there's a little summary of the rule of King Joram in verses 1 to 3. I'm sorry, Ben, I'm getting terrible feedback up here. Is there anything you can do about that? Okay. Um, There's a nice little summary of King Joram in verses 1 through to 3. Uh, Let me read it to you. Uh, It says, Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years. He He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel uh, to commit. He did not turn away from them. So it's a good news, bad news story again. The good news is that he was not a great fan of Baal. Uh, For some reason, and we're not told why, he got rid of the stone that his father had erected in honour of Baal. So that's good news. Uh, The bad news is in verse 3 that he still clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, who was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and what were his sins? Well, remember what happened after King Solomon had died. Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took over the throne, and he uh, declined to reduce the taxation on people. And ten of the tribes split away, and they formed the northern kingdom of Israel. And their leader uh, was King Jeroboam. That's who he was. What was his sin? Well, you may recall uh, from 1 Kings that uh, when Jeroboam and his ten tribes split, uh, he was concerned that his people would be travelling down to Jerusalem in order to worship God at uh, the temple. And that if they did that, that their heart affection to the house of David would be rekindled and that he might lose their affection. So what did he do? Well, he decided to start up uh, his own places of worship. And he went and built two golden calves. He set them up one at uh, the the town of Dan and the other one at the town ta- in the town of Bethel, and he said to the people of the northern kingdom, uh, "These are your gods. Uh, if you want to worship the God who brought you up out of Egypt, then go to Dan, go to Bethel, and you worship him through these calves, these golden calves." And so that was his sin. Uh, he introduced that kind of abhorrent. Uh, deviation of worship of the true God uh, and, uh, and, and, and did not allow his people to go to Jerusalem in order to worship God there. Now, we're told here that King Joram, although he was not a fan of Baal, that he nevertheless continued to encourage people in that false worship of God at Bethel and Dan. Now, at the same time as King Joram, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, their king was King Jehoshaphat. Now, we read a little bit about King Jehoshaphat in uh, 1 Kings chapter 22. If you go back a page to 1 Kings 22, verse 43, it summarises his reign. Let me read that for you. Verse 43 In everything he walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. And the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel. So he wasn't perfect. He allowed certain high places to continue to exist. But uh, elsewhere we're told that he also encouraged Bible teachers um, to spread out to all of the towns in Judah and to teach the law of God to people. So we're told here that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So uh, Israel and Judah had two very different kinds of kings. Uh, Israel's king was ungodly and Judah's king was a godly king. Now, in today's passage, these two kings joined forces to go to war. Uh, why did they jo- join forces? Well, let me read verses 4 to 7. Now, Mesha, the king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against him? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people. My horses as your horses. Now, uh, some background here. In the ancient world, uh, when one king and his nation was far more powerful than another king and his nation. Uh, Often the way that those two nations would exist side by side would be that they would enter into a covenant relationship with each other. Uh, The greater king was called the suzerain. I've written that for you on your outlines there. That's not a word you'd be familiar with. The lesser king was called the vassal. And the covenant would spell out... Uh, the arrangement between these two kings. Uh, the covenant would uh, spell out how great and how wonderful and how mighty the suzerain was and would uh, spell out how generous he'd been to the lesser king, the vassal, and it would spell out how he was going to do all sorts of good things to the lesser king. Um, mostly, he would protect the lesser king from the enemies of the lesser king. Now, the lesser king, the vassal, for his part, he had to do two things. One, obey everything that the greater king said, and two, um, pay the greater king. And if he didn't, then the greater king would invade his land, would attack, and would destroy him. You get the picture? Now, if that happened, these days, what would we call that kind of arrangement? Um, Blackmail? (laughs) Yep. It's protection money. It's like, you know, the gangsters that uh, go around to the businesses and they'll say, you know, we will protect you from all of the evil people that will damage your business. And if you don't uh, pay us up, uh, we'll damage your business. It's like one time uh, I parked the car in a car parking lot in Malaysia and there was this uh, guy came up to my car and I was told that I had to pay him a few dollars and he was going to protect my car uh, whilst I was gone. And if I didn't pay him a few dollars, he'd slash my tires. <laughs> All right. That's the kind of arrangement that they've got here. The suzerain vassal uh, covenant. Now, during this time, uh, the King Joram, up there in Israel... Uh, his, he had a vassal, and his vassal was the king of Moab. Uh, Moab was the lesser nation, and so what we're told in the passage there is that the king of Moab had to pay the king of Israel every year a hundred thousand, what is it, lambs, and the wool from a hundred thousand rams. And so the deal would be that if he didn't do that, uh, then he would be in trouble. And that's what happened. Uh, In verse 5, the king of Moab decided that he'd had enough, uh, that he'd paid uh, too much already, and he thought he'd take his chances and stop the payments. And if necessary, he'd probably go to war against Israel. Now, at that point, what did the king of Israel do Um, Did he turn to God for guidance? Um, Did he go and consult the prophet of God, Elisha, to ask what God wanted him to do, whether or not uh, he should go to war against the king of Moab? Is that what he did? No, he didn't do it, did he? Instead, what he did was he decided to put together an allied force. So he contacted King Jehoshaphat of Judah to ask him for help, Now, uh, King Jehoshaphat in Judah, he had his own vassal, and his vassal was Edom. Now, uh, Edom, who were they descendants of? Can anyone remember? Esau. They were the descendants of Esau. Whereas Moab, who were they the descendants of? They were descendants of? Anyone have a go at it? Not Jacob. Good, good guess. They were the descendants of Lot. So these are all people that are, you know, they're kind of cousins to each other. So Judah, uh, his vassal, their vassal was Edom. What that meant was that if Judah went to war, then he could actually say to the king of Edom, who was just a puppet king that he'd put in place, uh, he could say to him that he would have to join the uh, the coalition as well. And so they, um, there was two ways that they could attack uh, Moab. Uh, Israel could have attacked Moab through, uh, from the north. They'd, they'd go around the, the Red Sea there, the, the Dead Sea rather, and attack from the north. But there was a couple of reasons why that wasn't desirable. One was that the Moabites had built up their defenses around their towns in the north. Or alternatively, they could go for a long march, and they could march down through Judah, and they could join forces with the, uh, the the army of Judah there. Then the two armies could then proceed eastward into Edom, connect with the army of Edom. And then the three armies could then go around and attack Moab from the southeast, Uh, which was an area, it was like coming in through the back door, was an area where their defences were not particularly strong. And so uh, whilst that was a, um, in some senses, a more difficult way of attacking, because it involved a very long march, it made it easier to join three armies together and uh, to hit uh, the uh, the Moabites uh, at their weak spot. But it was a long march through the desert. And there was a problem. Do you see what the problem was? If you have a look at uh, verse 9, the problem was that they may have been... They may have just planned very badly. uh, Or it may have been that there were some water holes that they thought they'd come to but were dried up. But the bottom line is that by day 7 when not even an arrow had been shot in this war. Uh, they were pretty close to Moab. They were just on the other side of the border of Moab. But they, they had no water. Um, they, they, they couldn't quench the thirst of the soldiers or the, the animals that were with them. And they realized that they're, in fact, in very serious trouble. Uh, thousands and thousands of soldiers and no water. And they could be very vulnerable. They could easily be attacked. So, what did the king of Israel do? Who did he blame? Uh, did he blame his military advisors? Did he blame himself? No. In verse 10, who does he blame? He blames. He blames the Lord. Have a look at that. What, what he explained? Has the Lord brought us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But who was it that brought the kings together? It wasn't the Lord, was it? It was King Joram himself. Uh, God had played no part in his thinking until now. Uh, In the Old Testament, when uh, Israel had godly leaders, uh, when they were deciding whether or not to go to war, uh, they would... uh, consult God first if it was Moses he would talk directly to God other leaders they would go to the priests or to the prophets and they would find out what God wanted but not this king you see what kind of man was he? he was a shrewd politician and he was self-confident but the Bible warns us against self-confidence remember in the book of James in James chapter 4 Uh, it it talks about the self-confident person remember the person who says well i'm going to make up my plans and i'm going to go to this city or that city i'm going to do business and they tell everyone about that as if it's going to happen because they make it happen what they should be saying is if it's god's will but the self-confident person doesn't think they need god I wonder sometimes if we see this sometimes in ourselves have you have you noticed sometimes that we can kind of uh, make up our plan then proceed to action our plan and then uh, while we're doing that we um, ask God to bless our plan have you noticed that when what we should be doing is you know maybe having a chat with God first (laughs) and praying for his guidance and his wisdom Uh, King Joram didn't do that. In fact, all he could now do was to blame God when his plan failed. But uh, King Jehoshaphat was more godly. Um, Have a look in verses 11 through to 14. In verse 11, it says, But King Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered. Because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. But now bring me a harpist. Apparently he wanted some music to kind of uh, get him to think um, more about God. Now, it's not exactly a particularly warm reception from Elisha, is it? Um, It's quite sarcastic, uh, uh, actually. Uh, Elisha knows that Jehoshaphat is a godly king, but as for uh, Joram, well, he's a hypocrite. And, And do you see what Elisha tells him to do? He says, why don't you go and consult the prophets of your mum and dad and see what they have to say? Who were the prophets of his mum and dad? Who were his mum and dad, by the way? They were, his mum was? Jezebel. Jezebel. His dad was Ahab. And who were their prophets? The prophets of? Of Baal. So Elisha's saying to him, why don't you go and have a chat with the prophets of Baal? Now, here's the bloke who has actually torn down the the stone that his dad had erected uh, to, to Baal, and he's commended for that. But as far as Elisha's concerned, he might as well be a worshipper of Baal because he's uh, he, he's involved in the false religion of the golden calves and he only comes to God, you know, when he's in a desperate situation. And even so, he, he blames God for that situation. Now, um, it's there's some similarities with some spiritual issues that we... Uh, can confront today uh, where people have a form of religion that may, you know, in some respects look like they're, they're worshipping God, but they're actually denying God and they might as well be worshipping Baal. Uh, to illustrate that, I've got um, uh, two Presbyterian minister friends and the elders of their churches. Uh, who at at this very time are confronting and challenging false religion within what would broadly be thought of as the Christian church. Uh, The issue is that in their two different towns in the mid-north coast there are other mainline church leaders who uh, say that they believe in the God of the Bible who say that they believe that Jesus died on the cross, but who uh, refuse to believe that the death of Jesus on the cross uh, is the sufficient, perfect, and necessary sacrifice for the sins of people. Uh, In other words, the very core of the gospel, they deny. (laughs) And what they're trying to do at the moment is that they, they are trying to stop that message of the atonement, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. They're trying to stop that message from being taught to um, to children in the state schools. So they're, they're arguing for the deletion of the atoning work of Christ from the SRE curriculum, right? Now, they're Christian ministers. They say they worship God, the God of the Bible. They believe in Jesus. They believe that he died on the cross as a good example for us to follow. But they hate the idea of sin, judgment, and the atoning work of Christ. Um, Friends, they might as well be worshipping Baal because they're not worshipping the God of the Bible. They're not actually listening to what God's word says. Uh, Fortunately, there are people who are saying, no, you're wrong, I'm going to fight you over that. So in verse 16, God, in his mercy, does speak to Elisha, and he tells Elisha that he would rescue Israel and Judah and the Edomites, he would rescue them from their troubles of having no water, and the way he's going to do it is by causing a flash flood. Now, this is interesting because the thing about a flash flood, as you probably know, is that uh, the the rain falls somewhere else, and it flows down the valley till it gets to the place where the you know the um, the, the the river narrows and the the flood spreads out across the plain. And so you may see the flood, but you've got no knowledge of the storm because the storm happened somewhere else. And that's what happened here. The the storm actually happened down in Edom and it flowed uh, northwards. The water flowed northwards to where the three armies were camped uh, on the border with Moab, so the Moabites they didn't even know that the storm had happened. And what we see here is that uh, the, uh, the the flood happened overnight, and the the Moabite army, who by this stage knew that they were being going to be attacked from the south, had sort of rallied and were gathered there in the south, ready for the attack to happen. And they became confused. Because uh, in verses 21 to 23, they woke up in the morning. They looked across to where Israel was camped. They had no knowledge of a storm that had taken place. But all they saw was a flooded plain uh, with the sun um, reflecting off it. And to them, it looked red. And they thought that what they were seeing was blood. And they assumed that these three armies, who was a, you know, it was a tenuous coalition at the best. They assumed that these three armies must have gotten into a fight and they've slaughtered each other. So they decided to go in, thinking that everyone was dead, and go for the plunder. They were unprepared for what faced them. They were wrong, and indeed what they faced were soldiers, armies that were very much alive, and they themselves were defeated. In verse 25, the three armies, we're told, then attacked, they destroyed, and they plundered the towns of Moab. But it was a hollow victory, in verses 26 to 27, King Mesha of Moab, who you can read about in that bulletin article, by the way, an interesting stone that he had built. Uh, king Mesha of Moab realized that he was losing the war. And look at what happened, verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. Now, the reason for that would have been that he he sees where the Edomite army is, Uh, go for them because they're the the weak link in the chain. Uh, If they demoralise the Edomites, maybe some of those Edomites might even come over and fight with them and see that as a chance to break away from their Suzerain vassal relationship with Judah. But that failed and then look at verse 27 he then took his firstborn son who was to succeed him as king and he offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall the fury against Israel was great they withdrew and returned to their own land now um, Israel had won the war sure They'd won the war, but they failed to occupy the land. That's often the case in the Middle East, isn't it? It's kind of happening now in a couple of places in the Middle East. Uh, The Israelites uh, couldn't stay because the Moabite people hated them. Uh, Not only had their land been destroyed, but the author here is quite pointed. that He records for us that the crown prince had been sacrificed publicly by his father. Uh, human sacrifice was a uh, regular feature of Moabite uh, worship. They worshiped a false god called Chemosh. And uh, uh, it was a detestable religion. Um, And this was one of the reasons, Uh, regular, frequent human sacrifices. It was not unexpected that that should happen, but it may have been very unexpected that the king would sacrifice the future king, the crown prince, that the Moabites lost their future leader. And it uh, stirred up not only shock, but, but anger, great anger towards Israel. And so Israel's armies withdrew. Now, uh, this event uh, does appear to be recorded on the Moabite stone, uh, which, again, is on your bulletins. You can read a bit about that. Of course, uh, King Mesha in his record, uh, um, paints a more favourable picture of the Moabites. And I guess we'd have to say it's a messy story, isn't it? Uh, it's a uh, it's a story of politics, of uh, selfishness, of allegiances, of suzerain vassal relationships, of war. It's messy, and it may even raise the question for us as to why God would allow the Moabites to have to suffer in the way that they did. The passage doesn't give us the answer to that question. It doesn't tell us why God allowed that. But uh, it's worth noting that we do know from other parts of the Bible, in this case particularly Jeremiah chapter 48, that uh, God was not silent to the other nations, that God spoke uh, to the Moabites, to the Edomites, to many of the other nations around Israel through the prophets. Um, He spoke to, uh, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 48, he warned Moab that their sin would be punished. He had a relationship with these people as well. And God would often bring about punishment uh, through invading armies. That was the case when uh, God wanted to punish Uh, Israel he sent in the Assyrian army when he punished Judah he sent in the Babylonian army and it may be that Moab here is being punished for for their sin now next week we'll we'll read about uh, people who did value the words of the prophet but one standout issue in this passage is the value of God's word Uh, King Joram did not care about God's word. Uh, He did not seek God's will. And he blamed God when things went wrong. Uh, You and I do not have a prophet who we can go down to and visit and consult to find out what God wants. But what we have is better. Uh, We have the complete revelation of God's will in the scriptures in the pages of the Bible. God speaks to us through his word, the Bible, and yet it is easy for us to neglect God's word, to say that we believe in it, to say it's important in our lives, but to not read God's word often, perhaps even daily. And what that means is that we we are not filled with God's word. And we miss out on hearing what God thinks. We're guided more by what we think and when things don't turn out as planned we can sometimes even blame God and just wonder why did he let that happen to me. But think about this. If parents analyze every word in a school report If investors listen carefully to the words of economists and make huge financial decisions based on those words, then how much more should you and I be filling our minds with and paying attention to the very words of God? Let's pray.